Hi and welcome back. I'm Graham Sait and this is episode three of the Nutrition Farming Podcast. As you may recall, we hijacked episode two a few days back to cover the key strategies to protect yourself from COVID-19. But now we're back on track. We're going to explore some of these ideas that can help you build both profitability and sustainability on the farm. That, of course, is the promise of nutrition farming. Just to refresh your memory, nutrition farming is the integrated holistic approach where we work towards solving problems rather than the increasingly expensive treatment of symptoms. But before we roll with this, I'd just like you to mentally prepare yourself to be receptive to change. See, we're comfortable with the familiar. A repeated practice becomes a habit and habits are extraordinarily difficult to break. They actually form measurable neurological grooves in your brain. Now, the good news here is it takes three to four weeks to create a new groove that perhaps works a little better for you. I mean, you've ploughed your soil forever. You've battled your pests with chemicals and that got you through and it paid the mortgages. And that becomes our farming habit. What I'm suggesting here essentially is that if a new idea resonates, then let's look and keep in mind right from the start, let's keep in mind the idea of actioning that change. I mean, I've met farmers across the globe, some of whom have done dozens of courses in sustainable agriculture, but they haven't put a single first step into practice. They just keep listening. And what's happening here is that we're actually weirdly wired to hear ideas and to feel good that we even considered them. I'll share a little joke from an American comedian. He said, I was driving home from work the other day, and I see a bloke on the side of the road pushing a trolley filled with a whole bunch of junk, and I realised he was homeless, and that was his worldly possessions in that trolley. And I thought, I can stop right now. I can call him over, I can offer to take him home, I've got a spare room in the house, I've got a wardrobe full of clothes I don't wear, I can feed him some good food, I can dress him, I've got friends with businesses who could so easily give him a job, I could change that guy's life right here and right now. And then I drove on and thought, geez, you're a good bastard for thinking of that. (laughs) Now what I'm saying here is that I don't want you to be listening to these ideas and think, geez, I'm a good bastard because I listened. I want you to get out and try some of these ideas. So let's talk about harnessing humus. In the first episode, you might recall we talked about the role of humus in countering the greatest challenge that we've faced to this point. Now, you might be thinking, well, COVID-19 and the associated economic crash is surely the biggest challenge. It's not. That challenge doesn't impact whether most of us will be here in 20 years' time, like perhaps the climate change challenge does. So, as I mentioned, the largest, the biggest player in our response to global warming is that recognition that the largest component of the CO2 that thickens the blanket, traps the heat and changes our world, the largest percentage of carbon came from our soils when we went from 5% down to 1.5% organic matter. And the strategy is learn the techniques to grab it and put it back in the soil. And then we've also got this wonderful side benefit in terms of managing the new gold, water, I'm talking about, and understanding that a 1% increase in organic matter means that your soil can hold 170,000 litres of water it couldn't hold previously. There's no evaporation, there's no carbon footprint moving it to the farm. The plant takes it from the sponge called humus as it requires. So 
Let's talk about harnessing humus. Let's talk about the top 10 tips for boosting organic matter. And the first of those relates to how you finish off your cover crop. Now, the most common strategy, if you use, if you grow in a green manure or a cover crop, is to burn it off with a herbicide. And I'm suggesting that that may not be the best idea. The reason for that is that there are three minerals which are required in most soils that we test um, that have a cycle. There's the carbon cycle, the nitrogen cycle, and the sulfur cycle. And when we burn off uh, with a herbicide, we create much more of that gaseous emission, and we lose most of those three minerals. We need to put them back in the soil, have them complexed, and forming a carbon connection and stabilized in our soil so we can utilize those very, very important carbon, nitrogen, and sulfur. Often that's why we grew the green manure crop for that nitrogen component. And then we burn it off and off-gas the nitrogen and, of course, the precious carbon. So, you know, what alternatives? Well, you might have bought into the no-till religion, and I call it that because people think, well, you know, it's no-till and it's rigid and we never touch our soils. And, of course, it's a wonderfully constructive approach. It's, it's been remarkable for converting soils globally. The less disturbance, the better. But it doesn't mean you can never touch your soil. I mean, there's problems with no-till and what's called stratification. The minerals slowly move down the profile and the young crop has sometimes gets to the point of struggling to access those until it gets deeper roots. And so no-till, minimum-till is probably a better approach. You just have to weigh up every decision. You've got a big mass of organic matter from a cover crop and you think, okay, well, I can burn it off and leave it on the top and that gives a nice little protective layer or I can turn it in, uh, get some soil contact and convert all of that into humus and organic matter, stable organic matter, stabilize the nitrogen, stabilize the sulfur. And that's why we try to avoid, where possible, burning off that cover crop. Number two uh, in our strategies of building humus is the concept of putting legumes uh, with every pasture. Obviously, we all understand getting some legumes in with the ryegrass or whatever, but many of us don't understand the potential for including legumes under every cereal crop. Now, what's that about? This concept of putting two or three clovers, for example, under a corn or a wheat crop, and many people would think, well, that's counterintuitive. That's going to take my precious moisture. That's going to steal my nutrition. And the research suggests that is not the case. And we need to be aware of that and understand the benefits. There's not many farmers out there that have played around with this concept and not recognize its value. Most people that do it will continue to always underplant a legume. So let's talk about why we might do that. Now, number one, in terms of reasons to underplant the cereal crop with legumes uh, relates to this all-important strategy called building crumb structure. So this involves a biological process. So you've got bacteria emitting the sticky, slimy material that creates a tiny little aggregate or crumb in the soil. And then you have fungi with their hyphae wrapping up that uh, that tiny crumb and creating, often combining humus and clay together, but creating a larger crumb. And then you've got the perfect soil. Oxygen is gas exchange. We talked about how important that is. Oxygen moves freely into that soil. CO2 
diffuses freely out of that soil, ready to be captured by the tiny little pores under the, on the underside of the leaf surface. Uh, and so we have earthworms moving freely, we have plant roots moving unimpeded, we have moisture, we have infiltration improved dramatically. It's a hugely important thing. And of course, it's the perfect soil to grow any crop, a soil with crumb structure. And the most important component and the missing component in creating crumb structure is the fungal component in your soil. And that's a large reason why we would look at this concept of underplanting legumes, because legumes quite uniquely, there's a couple of other plants that do it, buckwheat being one of them, but legumes release an acid exudate, and that's the perfect conditions for the creatures struggling in many soils, the beneficial fungi. They will accumulate in those zones amidst those acidic exudates, and then begin doing their work. So the very simple thing is that you've got legumes under a bacterial-dominated cereal crop, and you've created that all-important potential for crumb structure by encouraging the fungi, the beneficial fungi, back into that equation. Now, the other reasons are quite important. The other reasons relate, of course, you know one of them. You put clover in, it's got little nodules that house organisms uh, called nitrogen-fixing organisms, uh, rhizobium in this case, that will grab some of that gas and convert it into nitrogen. And after they've satisfied their own requirements, legumes will give up that nitrogen to the crop which they're sitting under, which is a good outcome for supplemental nitrogen for your wheat or your corn crop. So that's nitrogen, but there are actually a couple of minerals that you might not think so, but there are a couple of minerals more important. The two most important minerals for the most important process, photosynthesis, are calcium and phosphorus. And herein lies a major problem because phosphorus uniquely has three negative charges, which means it's drawn like a nail to a magnet to calcium with two positive charges. That's why we find rock phosphate never as just phosphate. It's calcium phosphate. It's in that insoluble form with calcium and phosphate together, tricalcium and phosphate. So that's what happens in our soil. We can take our water-soluble phosphate, we can put it under our DAP, our MAP, under our crop, and within hours, but certainly within six weeks, 70 to 75% of that phosphorus has grabbed hold of calcium and become insoluble. Now, what fungi do is release an acid, just like we do to take rock phosphate and make soluble phosphate, we add an acid. We add phosphoric or sulfuric acid to create DAP or superphosphate. Uh, well, this is much milder and much more gentle breaking of the bond between calcium and phosphorus, but those acid exudates of legumes will release the bond between calcium and phosphate and deliver those two most important minerals to your host crop, your wheat crop, your barley crop, your corn crop or whatever. So that's probably the biggest single reason that we might look at this concept of always planting legumes under a cereal crop. So continuing our list, number three, we're going to talk about the importance of planting cocktail cover crops. Now, I've talked about the importance of including five species in a blend that research has shown us can release uh, phenolic compounds in the soil, or the plant roots begin pumping out phenolic compounds, and these antioxidants spark beneficial soil life. And we see very rapid changes in soil structure, and we see the speeding up of humus creation, and we see biology thriving. There are tests to confirm this. There's a wonderful test from Brookside Laboratories called the Soil Health Test that measures 
a number of parameters about minerals, microbes, and humus, and you get a soil health score between 1 and 50. And basically, the largest jump in that score from many things tested has been the adoption of cocktail cover cropping. So there's some scientific evidence of the value. There's also a wonderful little tool out there called the microbiometer that measures microbial biomass. And once again, you will always see the substantial jump in the increase of microbial biomass. And you'll see now that this microbiometer also includes a capacity to measure the fungi to bacteria ratio before it just measured soil biology. Now it also will give you an indication of the fungi to bacteria ratio and you will see the changes linked to this concept of cocktail cover cropping. So once again, we're talking about five families, if you recall, that need to be included in that cover cropping blend. They were grasses, cereals, brassicas, legumes, and chenopods, or some pronounce it as kinopods. So what are kinopods? Well, it's a pretty small group. Basically, it includes everything in the beet family. So in some countries where sugar beets are a commercial crop, that becomes the very cheap source of seed to have your kinopod percentage. So it's the beet family, it's spinach, it's quinoa, and it's amaranth. Even some of our weeds are part of the amaranth family. So if you just add a little percentage, only a small percentage of something like fat hen, for example, that's an amaranth and that can serve as your kinopod component. So how much of each of these things do we build into that five family blend? Well, with the kinopods, it's just a small amount. That's why it's not a huge cost. It's only 1%. On my farms, I usually put 2% in the blend just to make sure I get that 1% germination you know, in the end story. We use silver beet in that case because sugar beet's not readily available, but at 1%, it's not a huge cost. Now, what about brassicas? You don't want huge percentages because they release exudates called isothiocyanates that can be quite dissuasive against beneficial organisms like mycorrhizal fungi, for example. So you don't want the paddock filled with them. Five to 6% basically of brassicas is what we would put into that cover crop. So that's the concept of cocktail cover cropping as a primary humus building strategy. Now let's look at number four and our top 10 humus building hints. And we're talking about discovering humates. Now, if you've not yet discovered the benefits and potential of humates, you've got some real nice surprises coming. Let's talk about what they are. Well, basically, they involve two natural acids, humates, that are called humic acid and fulvic acid. When we compost, the better we compost, the higher percentage of those two natural acids we naturally create when we compost. So soils that are high in humus, if they're alive and some peat soils are not, but high humus soils contain naturally high levels of those two most powerful natural acids. So the good news in terms of you know low humus soils and how we can benefit from these two natural acids, humic and fulvic acid, is that we can extract those two acids from ancient organic matter in the form of certain types of brown coal. And so that can give us that sort of concentrated effect. We can create soluble granules or liquid forms that can be added and combined with fertilizers. And there are just so many benefits. If you've not heard about humates, let's talk about them. We'll talk about them in much more depth in subsequent presentations. But basically, there are measurable changes to almost every parameter of soil structure. There's evidence that we can increase the uptake of all nutrients by a third. So that includes fertilizers, but it also can be used to magnify the effect of chemistry. 
It's called how that works. It's a phenomenon called cell sensitization, where things move in through the cell wall, through the cell membrane, and that cell membrane becomes more permeable in the presence of either humic or fulvic acid. And it means you can suck up about a third more than what otherwise would have been uptaken. So that's, you know, that's a huge, wonderful outcome. So then, of course, at the moment we're talking about how do we build humus, and we talked about the most important humus-building creature out there, and that was cellulose-digesting fungi. And we mentioned if you do soil life tests that these creatures are very commonly missing in our soil, but they're responsible for the stable humus that will remain in our soil for 35 years, longer than most of us will be on the farm. As I mentioned, when you do soil life tests, we find that those organisms, those beneficial fungi, are seriously lacking in most of the soils that we check. So bringing them back in this nutrition farming strategy is of paramount importance. So what's the most important stimulant, the most powerful stimulant for beneficial fungi? It's called humic acid. Fulvic acid doesn't have much impact. It's much smaller and it predominantly feeds bacteria, but humic acid's filled with long-chain carbohydrates that beneficial fungi absolutely love. They'll survive and thrive really well when you stimulate them. So humates are stimulants for fungi, which in turn will sponsor crumb structure and help reclaim the humus-building apparatus of your soil so that the organisms work better, the humus-building organisms, everything works better. And basically, that's one of the primary reasons that humic acid may be amongst the most important of regenerative strategies. So before we move on and talk about number five in our list of top 10 humus-building strategies, I'll digress for a moment. If you've ever been to any of my talks, you know how often that happens, but usually there's some fun involved in those digressions. In this case, I'm going to talk about a study out of Australia by the National Bank where they looked at what determines profitability in agriculture. So they've got a set of criteria to determine whether they loan money for someone to buy their neighbour's farm. And they tick the boxes and they say, yes, you qualify for the loan. And then too many of those loans are falling over and hence the need for a second look at what determines profitability. To the surprise of the researchers, looking at everything, and of course there are many things that could be involved, it could be the amount of MPK you use, the size of your tractor, your accounting skills, your marketing skills, either of which could be important. But to the surprise of the researchers, the most important single determinant was the percentage of organic matter in your soils. They actually put a value per 0.1% increase in organic matter, your soil was worth so many hundreds of dollars per acre more because that reflected its productive potential. So that's the perfect example of the dovetailing of sustainability and profitability, which is part and parcel of the win-win scenario that is nutrition farming. So let's talk now about number five. And what we're going to talk about here is embracing compost. Now, you might have thought about compost or you might have used it and you're you know, you're thinking, well, I'm taking this material where we've sped up decomposition, where we've sort of intervened in a natural process with a bit of science and we've created the stable organic matter in the form of something called compost. And we're putting it onto our soil and that bit of organic matter is going to boost overall our organic matter. But that's only a very small part of what's happening when you use compost. Uh, because of that huge diversity and number of organisms present, um, and particularly when we add compost to chemically farmed soils, basically what we're doing is helping reclaim the humus building capacity of those soils. 
So many of these organisms, the fungi, the bacteria, um, are lacking in our soils. There's 5 billion organisms of teaspoon in a healthy compost, over 30,000 species, different species in that compost. And basically, the finding is that compost increases soil carbon by many times more than the carbon it contains. So it's a stimulant. In one study, a nine-fold increase on what you'd actually put in there. Nine times more carbon was built than what you added to the soil with that compost. And that's all about this whole concept, as we mentioned, of reclaiming your soil's capacity, bringing back that biodiversity to take some of those sugar exudates that the plants are pouring out from their roots, to take some of the roots as they die, to take the crop residues and much more efficiently convert those materials into stable humus in the soil. Compost, massive, um, amongst the most important inputs, in my opinion. We all should be looking at compost if we can or utilising compost if that's viable for us. Councils should be composting as a no-brainer with all that organic mass matter and possibly even using human waste in, com in combination with that organic matter to create um, actually quite a wonderful compost in some cases. So number six in this list involves the concept of minimising tillage. So the simple principle here is that fungi do not enjoy the intrusion of cold steel. In fact, tillage slices and dices the fungi. Uh, and there's another thing happening every time we open a soil. Every time we open up a soil, we oxidise some of the carbon. And if that soil's wet, that effect is quadrupled. There's, there's almost nothing less sustainable you can do than going out and working a wet soil because every time you do that, you always lose a little bit of organic matter, but you're going to lose four times more. If you can see the smear of that cultivation equipment on the soil, it's too wet, you should have waited. And often, of course, you can't wait. So no-till or minimum till is a tremendous productive strategy in that context, but there's one downside. And many consultants say, don't go there, Graham, but I'm going there as I'm prone to do, and we're going to talk about the world's most widely used chemical. We're going to talk about glyphosate, because that's the essence of the no-till approach. Basically, it's going to be banned at some point in the near future, and I'll talk in a moment about why that is necessary and why it will happen. And so you do need to prepare for a world without glyphosate. You've got to face reality, uh, and that's, that is reality. That's where we're heading. What we find is that uh, when we're up against the wall, human initiative will find another way. People said, oh, we can't survive without DDT. Well, we did. We probably didn't do better because the neonicotinoids seemed to be more destructive than what DDT was. But, you know, we did survive without it. Now, the story with glyphosate, basically, um, well, we're looking at physical alternatives, for example, in that story of human initiative. You might have heard of something called a roller crimper, uh, in varying sizes, some quite large ones out there now, these thinned rollers. So here's how this, this concept of roller crimping works. Basically, if you slash uh, a crop residue or, or a green manure crop or a cover crop or whatever, um, invariably uh, quite a few of those species will grow back. It's not you know, tremendously successful. It certainly doesn't kill off the crop, for example. But if you run this very heavy thinned roller and you bend over, crimp over that plant, you're actually cutting the top from the bottom and the bottom from the top and everything dies and you've created this beautiful layer of organic matter through which you can direct drill, sometimes before or sometimes after the roller crimping process and you've 
cut out the light, you've cut out weed germination, you're feeding the soil. It is, it's a tremendous concept. Uh, it's not always that effective on straight grasses. It works beautifully on broad leaves or a mixture of grasses with broad leaves, but sometimes there can be a bit of an issue when we get to trying to roll the crimp grasses and bend them over and be successful on the entire crop. So let's have a little bit of a closer look at glyphosate. I think it's important. I think we need to understand it. Uh, starting off with the concept of basically Hippocrates, the founder of modern medicine. He made the comment, let your food be your medicine and your medicine be your food. And we're increasingly realised just how profound that statement is as we, as hundreds of studies now confirm that we were supposed to get our nutrition from food, not from a bottle on the chemist shop shelf. So why? Because food contains all of the cofactors that determine the uptake and utilisation of the major uh, minerals or nutrients present. So it's much different than a supplement. Those cofactors, they really govern how well, this is what makes food our medicine. But most of our foods that we're consuming now are contaminated with the world's most widely used chemical glyphosate. And that includes things like our daily bread, our dairy products. Most of our meat products are fed things like sorghum that have been sprayed with glyphosate or crops that have been treated with glyphosate. And the list goes on. Many cereal grains fed to livestock and humans are now desiccated with glyphosate before harvest. Most cheap loaves of supermarket bread have 30% Roundup Ready soy, which is sprayed with glyphosate during the crop cycle. And we're sending our kids off to school with sandwiches made from that bread. It doesn't seem like a great idea to me. So we need to have a, a closer look. Where did it come from, this chemical? Well, it was originally patented as a collating agent that could strip manganese off industrial boilers. And then they found that it killed microorganisms. So it was patented as an antibiotic. And then, of course, the big one was discovered that it had a systemic impact on plants and could kill most plants on contact. And so began the simplification of broadacre farming, particularly you could take out everything now. You could kill the roots, and that was a tremendous benefit for a lot of people. Now, one of the men that I really, really admire out there in terms of researchers and scientists is a professor called Professor Don Huber. He's a wonderfully accomplished scientist with over 300 published papers, and he's become something of a whistleblower relative to this chemical glyphosate. So when he first started having a closer look, he was trying to explain a phenomenon called yellow flash that shows up on Roundup Ready soybeans. And so you get this blotch, this yellow blotch that comes across the paddock. And when you analyze to see what on earth's going on, you find manganese deficiency. And it was thought maybe the glyphosate was entering through the leaf and somehow impacting with its collating capacity, somehow impacting manganese availability. And, you know, Don's got two or three degrees and he's a plant pathologist and he's got, you know, a very good understanding of microbiology and so forth. And he thought something else was involved. And he was the first to demonstrate that glyphosate kills a group of organisms called manganese-reducing organisms on contact. It also kills a group of organisms called iron-reducing organisms. So both of these organisms, uh, groups of organisms, make iron and manganese available to our crops. And you might say, well, they're not that important. They're just trace minerals. I think I can do without them. Well, think again, because when we talk about plant resilience and we talk about plant immunity, we find that manganese particularly, but manganese and iron are involved in enzymes and processes throughout the whole story of plant immunity. So it's not 
you know, it's not unimportant that we shut down these two minerals. I mean, one of Don's more recent studies has shown that long-term use of glyphosate will predispose you to 40 different diseases. You're going to have more likelihood of succumbing to those diseases because of this compromising of plant immunology. So it's quite a picture. And one of the studies where just 2.5% of the applied, applied glyphosate reached the soil, there was an 80% reduction in manganese uptake and a 50% reduction in the uptake of iron. Basically, Don's research, amongst a few others working in this field, triggered the health world to say, well, we were told that you could drink the stuff, it's completely safe. And so they, you know, we saw people start looking a little more closely at its impact on our health. I mean, there'd already been s several studies uh, or, or findings relative to um, its impact on beneficial gut bacteria. We see people, countries like Denmark, that have banned the import of Roundup Ready food because they noted uh, this quite destructive effect on the guts of, uh, of livestock uh, eating that produce. And we saw when we first started importing the GM soy for bread, cheap bread into the UK, we saw the British Medical Council stand up to be counted and say, look, there's been this huge increase in gluten intolerance, this huge increase in allergies that seem to be directly linked to the inclusion of this soy flour into our bread. But basically, you know, I ask the question everywhere. I say, well, you know, how does glyphosate work? And very, very few people can tell you this. Well, it's the most widely used chemical and you don't know how it actually works. There are two or three modes of action, but the most important is that it shuts down a pathway called the shikimate pathway. Now, the story is that mammals don't have a shikimate pathway, and you might think, well, no worries, mate, that's good. Uh, we're okay, there's no problem. But everything else does. So, you know, the plant has the shikimate pathway. The microorganisms surrounding the plant roots, they have a shikimate pathway. Birds, fish, I mean, everything out there except mammals has this pathway that determines the utilisation of two amino acids integral to immunity. So what we've done with glyphosate, you could argue, is compromise immunity. We've brought a sort of form of AIDS into most parts of nature. And you can say, well, no worries, it didn't impact us. Sorry, you need to think again. We're talking about a 30-foot digestive tract that houses 100 trillion organisms. We're talking about a life within that governs every aspect of our health, including brain health. And those organisms, there's 10 times more of them than there is cells in our body, those organisms do have a shikimate pathway. And if you've got an immune system learning from a bunch of organisms with compromised immunity, uh, that's not a good story. So just to conclude my hatchet job on glyphosate, just talking more about the impact on human health, a bunch of things. I mean, several countries have, have banned the chemical because they found this very, very strong link between an increase in kidney failure and, and liver problems associated. It started with, um, I think, Ecuador and Sri Lanka have been the first two to ban and the several other countries that have followed. There's... A system that we have, an enzyme system that's called the lucky bastard gene, uh, well I call it that anyway, and it's basically a cleanup system that has a genetic link and some of us have better systems than others but we all depend upon this uh, detox enzyme system called cytochrome P450. Well, recent research has shown that glyphosate shuts that down or, or negatively impacts how that works. 
which means we're not we're in a world with 74,000 registered chemicals and we're not cleaning ourselves up as thoroughly with our detox system um, involving this enzyme system. We're not doing that as well as we could. How many of you have ever heard or known that there's a condition called glyphosate-induced vitamin deficiency that is now suspected to be linked to childhood cancer? Not many of us even knew there was such a thing, but it gives you some idea. And then, of course, we see the World Health Organization, the very controversial World Health Organization at this point of time relative to COVID-19. But we see uh, their statement from a couple of years back where, with all of the current research, glyphosate is a definite animal carcinogen and a probable human carcinogen. Now, since that time, of course, we now know that it's a definite human carcinogen because there are thousands of lawsuits in the wings relative to the link between non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and glyphosate. And of course, the last two of those were a billion dollars a piece. And so we've got thousands potentially at a billion dollar a piece. So I think Bayer are in trouble in years to come, to say the very least. So, you know, I don't actually, I don't like sharing this really because, you know, I think we need to be doing all that we can to, to get this out. But this, this is a pragmatic approach, basically. There's no, you can't do this, you can't do that. It's how can you do it better is the nutrition farming approach. And there is a way where we can reduce or we can speed the breakdown of glyphosate while reducing how much we use. So, so I will share that with you. Basically, it involves the use of fulvic acid. And fulvic acid, uh, you can get it in powder or liquid form. It's much more cost-effective as a powder. And you're using about 100 grams uh, per hectare of fulvic acid powder added to the glyphosate. Increases the uptake by a third. Remember, that's what fulvic acid does. So you can use at least 30% less glyphosate. Now, there's another finding that all chemicals have a sweet spot relative to pH. We know that diethane at a pH of, of 7 has a half-life of 18 hours, but a pH of 5.2, that fungicide uh, extends out to 18 days, which is half-life, which means you've got you know a month's protection versus a couple of days' protection, um, just because you've got the pH right. Well, what's the sweet spot for glyphosate? Most of us know it needs to be below 5, um, and we add a little bit of ammonium sulfate to pull it, pull it down to perhaps 4.7, but... I mentioned my friend Bruce Tanio, who's no longer with us. Uh, Bruce did some substantial research to find where was the sweet spot for glyphosate. And what he discovered, surprisingly, was 2.9 is where glyphosate kicks ass, as they say. Uh, and so how do you get down to 2.9? You use citric acid. Every shed needs a bag of citric acid. It's the cheapest. It's actually quite a good thing to put in the soil because it's a natural substance that's also a collating agent and it's in an expensive way. 100 grams per 100 litres drops pH by one pH point. So six becomes five at 100 grams. Uh, 200 grams will take six down to four and so forth. Uh, so we add that into our glyphosate, pull the pH down to 2.9, and again, there's about a 30% reduced requirement. So if you're using fulvic and citric together, and you put a good penetrant with that, you can seriously reduce um, the amount of glyphosate you're using. But, but as importantly, we want to we make sure that there's not residues sitting around the soil for too long. The problem from a biological perspective is that glyphosate kills algae, and algae produce sugars that are a food source for our main workers, fungi and bacteria. So if we can remove those residues, we can fast track the breakdown of glyphosate, which is a bacterial breakdown. Well, fulvic acid is, 
has this massive 1400 cc, so it can absorb things. It absorbs the glyphosate. The bacteria who are mainly responsible for breaking down glyphosate go like bees to a honeypot. A spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. They, they whip into that embedded uh, glyphosate within the fulvic because they love the fulvic. They don't particularly like glyphosate, and, they, and that speeds the breakdown of glyphosate. So, so there is ways. There's always ways we can do things more sustainably. So we're going to move on now and we're going to talk about the seventh uh, humus building hint and we're talking about bringing back your earthworms. So I ask people wherever I travel, how many of you have got significant numbers of earthworms and very few hands go up. There's uh, the short story about the benefits of earthworms. They create humus, all important humus, four times more rapidly than standard decomposition. At this time when we need to sequester carbon, they seem pretty important to say the least. And when you look at what comes out their rear end, oh my goodness, what a remarkable fertilizer. 10 times more potassium, 7 times more nitrogen, 5 times more phosphorus, 3 times more magnesium, 1.5 times more calcium. You've got a little fertilizer machine in your soil. And basically what we're trying to achieve with this, uh, this farming approach the holy grail of nutrition farming is to work towards an average of 25 earthworms per shovel. And if you could achieve that, how much fertilizer are you producing? Well, you're producing 300 tonnes of earthworm castings per hectare per year. Do you understand how amazing that is? I mean, if you buy earthworm compost at a really good price, which is like $100 per tonne in bulk, you just got $30,000 worth of free fertilizer. You hit pay dirt, literally, in that instance. There's other benefits with, with earthworms. They, they incubate a unique group of organisms that are only found in their gut or in their poo. So if you don't have earthworms, you don't have that unique group of, organ, of organisms that you know, can boost nutrient uptake, that can protect from disease, and the list goes on. So that's why worm juice is a really good fertilizer. You're just running water through the bed, picking up that unique microbial inoculum with, with many, many benefits. So bring back your earthworms. Number eight, uh, when we talk about building humus more efficiently, um, breaking down our crop residues. It's so common for me to walk onto a farm and see residues that are 12 or 18 months have been sitting there for that long. Now, you know, there should be nothing after six weeks. If you've got sufficient cellulose digesting fungi, who are the creatures responsible for that more fibrous material, there should be nothing there six weeks later. And that's very rare to see. You see it, but in good active soils, um, it's gone within six weeks. And so you need to give it some help. You can bring in inoculums, cellulose digesting inoculums. You can make fungal-dominated compost teas. You can bring in creatures like trichoderma that offer many other benefits, including disease control, but they're really voracious cellulose digesters. You can even use beneficial anaerobes like EM or my product, BAM, for example, um, that will work but the facultative anaerobes, they'll work very, very voraciously in the presence of oxygen. But whatever you're going to use, whatever inoculum you might bring in there to speed that breakdown and create humus more efficiently, I talk about the lunchbox approach. You send the workers off to work with a lunchbox, and it depends on what that worker is. If it's a bacterial brew, you're going to send it off with fulvic acid, 
molasses, sugar, those kind of simple foods for bacteria. But if it's a fungal brew, it's trichoderma, you're going to see it with the more complex foods. So they'll hit the ground running and they'll colonize more efficiently and more rapidly. And so we're going to include fungal foods like like humic acid, like seaweed, kelp fertilizers and so forth, the kind of materials we'd use. So number nine in our list of strategies to build humus is oxygen. I mean, the most important single element for plant growth is not NPK, it's not calcium. Uh, The most important element is oxygen. I mean, just hold your nose for uh, two minutes unless you're a pill diver and you'll understand how important oxygen is. Everything requires oxygen. Uh, It is so hugely important. And so we've talked about one of your principal roles is gas managing gas exchange, how freely does oxygen move into that root zone, is utilized by the organisms around the roots and the plant roots themselves, and then breathed out. Of course, the byproduct of oxygen metabolism is CO2. And then the CO2 moves from the soil, is captured by the plant, and so continues the process of photosynthesis. So gas exchange is huge. How freely does oxygen come in? How freely does CO2 come out? And that's about keeping the soil friable and open. And that's a huge story if you've got high levels of magnesium, for example, because magnesium has a closing effect, a tightening effect in that soil. And that's where we look at things like um, like gypsum, for example. Gypsum is calcium sulfate, and basically it ionizes apart, and the sulfur component joins onto magnesium, which is, of course, magnesium sulfate, the most leachable form of magnesium. So we, And sodium, you form sodium sulfate with gypsum. Uh, And those are the two most leachable forms of the two minerals that tighten the soil more effectively than any other. So if we could pull out our excess sodium and our excess magnesium, it can make a huge difference. And so if we can't afford to put gypsum onto the whole paddock, then we can use things like micronized liquid gypsums. That's a really good strategy. You can just put them right into the root zone and open up that area and get that soil breathing immediately around the roots. And if you put legumes under your cereal crop, those fungal-based aggregates, that's going to improve gas exchange because oxygen comes more easily into that crumb structure and CO2 comes out more easily. So I've just just realized that I haven't got 10, I've only got nine, and I said I have the top 10 strategies. So just off, uh, let me just think from, okay, so I'll just add an extra little thing because I get people contact me constantly. Last week, I had an agronomist from Kenya who grows flowers, contact me, who had done my course when I was in South Africa at some point. And he was talking about humus building in his scenario. And he said he struggles so hard in these lighter subtropical soils to build significant amounts of organic matter until he discovered this. And I'm about to do this on my own farm based upon that email. Um, he discovered between rows, he's growing flowers, between the rows he uh, decided, he was, he was trialling different cover crops and he found that cow peas were the solution. You grow cow peas, if there's an edible form over there, but even if you weren't eating them, I mean, of course, we've talked about that stimulation from that legume, creating the fungi, but, but then turning that back in. Uh, that has been the greatest strategy that he's discovered. And he's really significantly, you know, trebled organic matter in the last two or three years with the use of cowpeas. So that's going to be uh, that's going to be my strategy. I'm going to test that out uh, on my research farms just to see if there's anything to it in my conditions. So to conclude episode three of the Nutrition Farming Podcast, I don't know that I actually defined the word humus, but let's do that now. Humus 
is the sweet-smelling chocolate-coloured substance that's produced by microorganisms and it becomes their home base. It's the only thing in the soil that can hold all minerals and it holds its own weight and moisture. And so the list goes on and on in terms of the benefits of this wonderful substance. I mentioned that humus, that the, the, the etiology, the derivation of the word means pretty much the same as humans. And it also means pretty much the same as the word humility. And it's our lack of humility that brought us to this point. So I might conclude with a great quote from the author Tom Robbins. Here it is. What he said was, Although the surface of our planet is two-thirds water, we call it the Earth. We say we are earthlings, not waterlings. Our blood is closer to seawater than our bones are to soil, but that's no matter. The sea's a cradle that we all rocked out of, but it's to dust that we go. From the time that water invented us, we began to seek out soil. The further we separate ourselves from soil, the further we separate ourselves from ourselves. Alienation is the disease of the unsoiled. That's a particularly important message for the millions of city folk who have really lost that connection to, to nature, to where their food came from, to that important, most precious of all substances called topsoil. Another little quote from Aldo Leopold, we abuse the land because we regard it as a commodity belonging to us. When we see land as a community to which we belong, we may, may begin to use it with love and respect. And that, my friends, is what our Aboriginal community have done for the past 60,000 years. We've got a great deal to learn from these people in that context. So, on that happy note, thanks so much for listening. I hope there was something you gained from, from the podcast. If you liked it, please share it. Perhaps even review it. It has a great impact when we get those nice reviews. So, until next time, which will be a month away, I'll be talking to you again then. Stay happy, stay healthy.